Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. On today's episode, Chloe and I are joined by Greg Lehman. Greg is a public figure, I guess, and he's also a chiropractor, a physiotherapist, a kinesiologist, he's a published researcher, and uh, we talk about specific compared to general exercise for pain, when it might be a good idea to do specific exercises and when you don't need to, uh, poking into pain when that's a good plan and when it's not, skateboarding at the age of 43, uh, optimism for knee osteoarthritis, and lots of other fun stuff. So stick around. Okay, we're here with Greg Lehman. Greg, awesome to be with you. Thank you. You too. Hi, Greg. Yo. <laughs> Yo. This is very exciting. I've been looking forward to <laughs> forward to this for weeks. So um, yeah, it's nice to see you and hear you. Which is uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Hey, Greg. The um, your your course uh, reconciling biomechanics with pain science, and also your presentation at the San Diego Pain Summit that I attended a few years back, were one of the best courses and certainly the best comedy presentation I've ever ever experienced. <laughs> so I just yeah. wanted to thank you. For yeah, that. I just keep recycling the same jokes. <laughs> they're, they're very good. It was well, when it's good I, for the environment. At least. When, when I did your course as well, your um, jokes were definitely a standout standout as well. And I think that's how I first got to know about you, Greg. I feel like maybe Raf posted something. One of yeah, the, you were on fire at the San Diego Pain Summit presentation. I posted it on on socials and um, which one cracking up all over the world. I've done two. Oh, it's just which which oh. extremely funny one. <laughs> I, I can't even remember exactly what it was about, but you, I just remember you kind of like striding up and down the stage, ranting sarcastically about things. Yeah. <laughs> Might have been hungover. <laughs> and my other favorite of yours, my other favorite video is you and um, your daughter in Mimi. Oh, yeah. Doing, doing the, doing the um, <laughs> teaching, teaching the first step. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I repost it because I love... I love watching her in that one. How old is she now? She's eight, just turned eight. She might have been three there, I think. Yeah, she was little. It's the it's the absolute best, and it doesn't it doesn't lose anything with multiple watches. I just keep watching it over and over oh, again. That kid's funny. She's so funny. Her timing was perfect. <laughs> it was really good, wasn't it? Yeah. Um. So, Greg, there's there's we've got a few things we want to talk about today, but I, what I want to uh, start off with is. Something that's uh, I see a lot of people struggling with, which is this: the um, given that in most cases, exercise doesn't really need to be specific. 
right? So if we have a sore knee, we don't need to do VMO activation. If we have right. a sore back, we don't need to, you know, retrain our glutes to fire or get our transversus timing, you know. So we can just basically just get moving, right? And there's a whole bunch of non-specific contextual factors that are really important around our expectation and our, you know, self-efficacy and all of that other stuff. But, uh, you know, whether we do glute bridges or squats, you know, really doesn't matter. Um, uh, you know, so given, given this is the case, um, a lot of people, you know, struggle with the, you know, this kind of fall, falling into this nihilistic pit of despair. It's like, well, what good am I? Okay, if I'm a movement teacher and it doesn't matter if you do squats or lunges and if you're doing squats or lunges, it doesn't matter if I'm telling you to activate your glutes or not and it doesn't matter if I'm cueing your knees to go out over your toes. So what the fuck good am I? What am I here for? Why, are you, why am I charging? Like, why don't I just go and do nothing and sit on the couch and cry and you just go over there and move however you want? You right. know, like, what's the point of me? <laughs> so, yeah, how do, you, how do we reconcile that? Yeah, it's so... Uh, the idea, like I always, if you remember, we start my course with the question, like, um, when do you have to be specific, right? Or when, when are there cases where specificity might help more? I still still think there are some cases, but it's just not what we've always led to uh, believe. So, mm -hmm. so biomechanics can kind of matter if you're working someone because you could have another target for the exercise prescription rather than pain, right? So right. it's really right. pain where it doesn't matter too much. Correct. You're going to get these analgesic so if you, if you, effects if, and help people right. with pain with a lot of different options. So then what's great is you can tailor your exercise to someone via some other target where they might say, I want to develop my glutes for aesthetics. I want to get stronger or fitter for this sport. Like you're working with a runner and someone wants to be more efficient in their running. So then you would choose... Um, you know, back exercises that would help their running, or you work with someone who's uh, 30 and they're worried about their bone density because their parents have like hip fractures or something. So then you choose exercises that develop bone density or minimize the risk of sarcopenia, or, you know, maybe you, someone just wants to be more well-rounded and fit. And you notice the way they do an exercise, like the glute bridge one, it's really, um, back focused and you're like well it could be worthwhile to make it more of an emphasis on their hips or they might be like well i want to develop my back so you switch up the exercise to make it more of a of a back extensor one or they've had hamstring issues so you think you know what maybe we load the hamstrings more and you change it that way so there's all these other targets that you can have besides like the classic you know ones of how you choose an exercise okay so point number one is all right so point number zero is yeah this this I should have said that at the start is we're, we're contextualizing this to helping people with pain and point. And so point number one there is, well, you can actually choose, you know, kind of particular targets or even I'm going to use the word specific targets for exercises. Like I want to give you more eccentric hamstring strength, or I want to, you know, increase the size of your butt. So you'd have to go up a pant size or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but that that's not that's not in relation to the pain. It's just in relation to what's some other life goal that this person has that we can you know create some kind of meaning around this exercise for them. Yeah, exactly. That's it exactly. And then all the time you're wondering, yeah, always challenge your bias. Is there something specific needed? So I tend to think like 
if someone has a hamstring tear, well, they'll, they'll, we know that they'll benefit from other exercises that have nothing to do with the hamstrings for pain. But for maybe if, if they're returning to sprinting, then you probably want to build them up to tolerate the demands of sprinting, you know, so yeah. heavier, faster and range, you know, type, type activities. So like, you're always wondering is, might it be, is it better to bias ourselves toward a little bit of specificity just to cover all your bases, you know, just, just in case. Right. But the specificity based on you know, their you know, personal or sport yeah. goals or, you know, if we're talking about an injury like a muscle tear or something like that, then yes, obviously that is more of a specific, you know, yeah. you know, if, yeah. if you're rehabbing a hamstring tear, bicep curls probably aren't going to do as much good as, you know, yeah. hamstring curls, for example. Yeah. You know what though? I think there's like a paper that came out like today, I just heard about it for muscle tears where you can do these general non-specific ones and it'll still help someone for pain and function, but it just won't make that damaged muscle that much stronger. And there are right. some cases where like strength or mobility might be quite relevant to, to, to develop, to return someone to sport. Right. So like, the, right. you know, the, the higher the demands, the more specific the injury, you could probably say there's more relevance in a specific exercise. All right. So I want to, I want to tease that apart for a minute because, um, I'd like to, uh, yeah, I'd just like to double click on understand and on what you mean by, you know, high demands and specific you know, injury, because I think people are probably thinking, oh, well, I've got a disc bulge, you know, that's a specific injury and therefore I need to activate my glutes or something like that, you know, like, so what do you mean by specific? So I'm thinking something like a hamstring tear, something like an ACL tear, so you tear a ligament, uh, uh, something like an Achilles tendinopathy. Uh, from, so let's say people are just returning to walking, like really low level demands, then they don't need to be too specific. You need to load around those areas. But if you're a 17 year old girl and you're returning to soccer, you probably really need to load those areas and develop as much, you know, all everything that contributes to capacity, like power, you know, strength, strength in all ranges of motion, whatever, whatever the demands or the sport are, you probably want to make sure that you've prepared the person to do it. So the, those are like specific cases, um, right. with the disc one, I think the where and people could totally debate me on this one. This is just a personal opinion. Like, I think the, the specific question you ask is like, do we expose or protect? Is it worth backing off? Like, do you have to change how someone moves to give them some pain control? You know, so they're not doing the thing that really aggravates them. And I think there's a role for avoidance sometimes, uh, and, and so a specific exercise would be, Hey, don't do that thing that aggravates you, <laughs> you know, barely advanced. Yeah, what's that meme that's but going it, on social media? Yeah. Where the, there's the photo and the guy says, Hey doc, it really hurts every time I do this. And the doctor says, well, well, don't do that then. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but the thing is, this is what's funny with like Pilates or exercise prescription. Some people do like I call, and I've just made this up. I call them accidental endurance copers. They don't even mean to, but for whatever reason, they keep doing something that aggravates them. And that's where like, you know, the, the, the trainer or the, the coach or the therapist comes in or the instructor, like, oh, you're, you're doing this and they don't even realize it. So you teach them a new way to move and it feels dramatically better sometimes. And they're like, I had no idea that I could do it that way. So, all right. So when we're rehabbing a, 
uh, you know, an acute injury like a muscle tear or a, a ligament sprain or rupture, you know, Achilles tendon injury. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. There's definitely a place for progressively, you know, initially uh, protecting that area and then, yeah. you know, progressively loading the area in, you know, for instance, in the case of an, uh, of an ACL injury, um, you know, the, the, the aggravating or the dangerous position is where the knees, you know, slightly bent and in valgus yeah. and, and you're doing a cutting maneuver, like basically changing direction, you know, in whilst running. And so that's the position we want to avoid initially. So we start out bilateral and sagittal plane straight ahead movement. And then we eventually, you know, have to progress that person to doing like sideways hops and standing on a BOSU and, you know, all of those basically sort of potentially injurious, you know, situations. And and we have to, you know, progressively load the tissues and we have to know the tissue healing time is going to be like a 12 month, 15 month, 18 month process till that, 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 tendon, which is going to be a grafted tendon off their hamstring or their, their quadriceps tendon uh, or patella tendon, uh, is, is going to reach full strength just based on the physiology. And so we know it's going to be a, like a 12 month plus process. And we know we've got to initially strengthen that whole area, but avoid that position. And then progressively, we've got to, you know, move towards that position and explosive, you know, change direct, yeah. direction and, you know, unpredictable situations and so on. And so that, that, you know, to me, that is, I'm in full agreement there that there is, a, you know, it's like, okay, so if we, if we just did a program of say push-ups and upper body strength, you know, for that person, it's not going to be as effective. You yeah. know? Um, so absolutely there is a, there's a case there for, or a situation there for doing, you know, I guess a specific exercise, but even within that, I mean, if you look at, you know, I mean, we, I'm just teaching ACL rehab at the moment, actually in, in the diploma this week. And so, you know, we look at, at, at the, the tissues that are synergists of the ACL. So tissues that basically, you know, are backup systems for the ACL. So the IT band, the distal insertion of the IT band is parallel with the ACL. The pes anserinus, which is the common tendon of the gracilis, the sartorius, and the semitendinosus is synergist. The hamstrings and quadriceps and, you know, stabilize the knee, the gastrocnemius plays a role. It's like, oh, by the time you get to there, it's like, oh, that's all the leg muscles, you know, that's the flexors, extensors, abductors, adductors, oh. et cetera, the knee, hip and ankle. And it's like, oh, well, what is, what is strengthening all of those muscles look like? It looks like a squat or a lunge, you know? Yeah. So. Well, the only thing I'd say with that though, is this is where I actually think one area you want, you want to be pretty specific. I would still advocate, uh, like a quadricep extension in a machine mm -hmm. because you can For do a lunge fan. and protect the quad you can yeah yep. you can shift your weight so yep. sometimes if you, you that that's where we still have a role role where you see how someone's movement habits and they actually you can't even really see it that well unless it's extreme so that's where you want to like make sure you 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 know cross all your t's mm -hmm. and that stuff and dot your eyes yeah agreed um uh, all right. So in that situation, and then, you know, probably something similar applies into hamstring tears or Achilles yeah. rehab. So, you know, you need to work that body part, yeah. um, to, you know, to protect against future injury. But, you know, in most situations where someone has, you know, I'm thinking, right, patellofemoral pain or, you know, so basically knee pain, non-specific knee pain, yeah. you know, related to running or stair climbing or, right. you know, things like that. Um, or, you know, non-specific back pain with or without disc bulge, with or without spondylolisthesis, with or without facet joint arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, non-specific shoulder pain, you know, formerly known as shoulder impingement, you know, et cetera. 
Um, you know, so the list could go on and on, but you know, what's the role, if any, of specific exercise in in those can, situations? Again, you only need, I think you need to be more specific if someone's returning. Like you need to match the demands of what someone's returning to, mm-hmm. right? But if it's pretty non-specific. <laughs> <laughs> demands, then your exercise is going to be pretty non-specific. And again, I think the more important question is expose or protect or expose or back off, you know, so mm-hmm. the, it, it, it's, it, it's easy that way. You're, you're, you're guessing when do I need to do an e-exercise and usually, oh, you can wait, just do all these other things first. And then you start mm-hmm. doing the knee exercise. Um, what I think is a cool, uh, I'm just going to change. This is a better, this is a question you should ask me. I, okay, great. Cool thanks. Question is, thanks for the tip. We know we, we know we need to build back up and I always wonder, do you need to do like boring if say it's a runner or someone who hikes or does trampoline, do you need to, do you need to do boring old knee exercises, squats or lunges, or can you use the goal activity as the stimulus to adapt? Well, I was, I was thinking about that actually, when you uh, were talking about rehabbing hamstring tears before to the demands of sprinting, because we know that the demands of on hamstrings of sprinting, I can't remember the exact number. It's like quadruple the amount yeah. of a hamstring curl or something, right? Yeah. So it's like the maximum load you're ever going to experience on your hamstring is during sprinting. So if you've got to be conditioned to the demands of sprinting, surely your program's got to include some sprinting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. It's like, I think the, de- the debate there is uh, once you have an injury, do you have to develop some other attribute to account or accommodate for that injury? So like if you have an, an Achilles tendinopathy, yeah, the best way to prepare the Achilles tendon for running is to run and to hop and to skip, but you probably won't build up the tendon, the stiffness of the tendon. Cause it's, you need to be loading it for like a three second duration. So, so is that the, do you, does it need something else that you don't get in the goal activity or does the hamstring tear need something else that it doesn't get in the goal activity of sprinting? And so because I don't know, I'm like belts and suspenders, do both, absolutely do the sprinting and do some heavy resistance training and get healthy and sleep better and do push-ups and core work and calf work and shoulder presses. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I can can just imagine the program that you're writing for me to rehab my Achilles tears. Uh, It's a very big program. Well, you should see the Jordan (laughs) Menduchiga program for – uh, hamstring tears. I always show the program and don't say what the injury is for. And it's awesome. <laughs> and then people have to guess. And then I say, it is for the hamstring. I'm like, could it be for an ACL? Yeah. Could it be for back pain? Yeah. Could it be for knee pain? Yeah. It's so comprehensive. <laughs> Everyone says we don't want to throw the kitchen sink at it. And I'm like, what's wrong with kitchen sinks? <laughs> I love that. Maybe the right thing to do. I want to um, delve in a little bit more, Greg, too, and you've you've mentioned it throughout that conversation then in regards to poking into pain, when, when might we want to poke into pain, when might we want to pull back? Because I know uh, a really common thing I hear from instructors, Pilates instructors, which are our predominant listeners of the show um, and uh, newer instructors and, um, you know, more experienced instructors is really – they're fearing their client's pain and they're really nervous that, you know, if, if their client's feeling any pain, that they're actually going to be potentially hurting that client or causing further damage. That's a, that's a common, common thought process that's going through an instructor's, instructor's mind. So I'm just wondering, you know, and, and then conversely you've got the client who 
is feeling the same. It's like, well, if I'm if I'm feeling pain, I'm I'm re-injuring myself or I'm further damaging myself or et cetera, et cetera. So there can kind of be this this fear coming from both both sides. And yeah, what I'd love to I know you're doing a lot of that at the moment um with your YouTube series. So I'd love you to yeah. kind of chat about your thoughts on that. It's an important question. And I, I would say like we know we're safe to poke into pain and the before you do it, probably the criteria is you have to understand the pain. So you gotta get checked out. You have to know what's why it's your pain. You know, if it is it your usual pain, if it's some new pain that just came out of nowhere, you know, and it's super sharp or different, then I wouldn't necessarily poke into it. But if you gotcha. understand the pain, you've been checked out, you know that the pain doesn't mean, uh, well, it could be something horrible, like, like, you know, cancer or something like that. Or it's, you know, if you just had a fall and maybe you actually have a fracture somewhere then yeah, th- then you want to shut it down. But if it's yeah. their normal so we've pain, ruled out red flags. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. So like normal pain, like this is what people will say, well, I'm like, yeah, you're totally safe. Pain is not always the best guide. We're allowed to poke into pain. See how you feel a couple days from now. If you're no worse a few days from now, and in, if the general long-term trend is you're getting better, then great. We're allowed to keep poking in. The other idea, people will say, well, what if I actually do have tissue damage? And I say, even better, because <laughs> then we, we have made way more evidence that it's actually safe to poke into pain, and it might even be helpful You know, with the right. same criteria. You're not really flaring up the next day or two days later. Because we can't always trust what, what we feel. So you're allowed to poke into it. And then there's the like the third set set of people. And this is kind of me who like always have some persistent pain. Past few months, it's been my ankles and for some reason my hip. And I, if I just wait for that to go away, yeah, I will never do anything. So it's yep. so often I poke into pain for half, like I'm going, cl- and I have a frozen shoulder now too. I think I have some systemic shit going on. Anyways. Yeah, I I saw that. You you put up some post in, of you trampolining. You're like, this was before the frozen shoulder, yeah. just when the frozen, and I didn't realize you'd had a frozen shoulder. Love to talk more about that. Yeah, too, I didn't know until January. And then January was like, I thought it was just a shoulder thing. And I kept poking and pushing into pain and whatever. Uh, and I'm going rock climbing tonight. Uh, for like the first time since our lockdown, like a year and a half ago, but I haven't climbed the yeah. past year because my shoulder, I'm like, you know what? It's going to hurt, but who cares? I know why it hurts. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. make it worse. It's not going to freeze yeah. it more. Like it's just yeah. going to hurt, but I want to go climbing. So yeah. whatever. Right, <laughs> so it, like easy. That so sounds so key... callous, eh? No, just no, suck no, it up. I just know what I mean, no. but like I understand <laughs> no, what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I, I totally so I feel get it safe. When... Yeah, right. Okay. So you understand what's going on. So you feel safe. It's interesting because my, um, my dad's very much the same. He has, uh, OA in his, in his hands and in his elbow. And he, you know, basically says to me, well, it hurts if I don't, it hurts if I do. I love exercising. I feel better when I exercise, um, you know, for all the other things that exercise gives me. So the fact that it hurts when I, when I exercise is like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So how, so that's interesting. So how do we, hmm, so we've really got to go about, I mean, to me, it sounds like it's obviously like everything else. It's really important to build therapeutic alliance with Mm. your clients. It's important not to fear your client's pain. Um, And it sounds like we need to add in some education there with our, with our clients. They're the yeah. sort of that's it and really understand it i always like pain gets a seat at the table but it's not you know the ceo that's it 
It's just one voice. Payne gets I a like seat that. at the table, but it's not the CEO. It's one voice. That's freaking awesome, Greg. Yeah, we're not North Korea. <laughs> was that a, was that a Pilates uh, elephants exclusive? Have you said that before? That was quite that was quite <laughs> profound. I thought it's a new one. Just my I don't do a <laughs> lot of dictator jokes, but what the heck. <laughs> We've got an exclusive. I was hoping for a Greg Lehman exclusive. That's fantastic. Okay, so um, right, so we want to we want to poke into pain, and when okay. we don't want to poke into pain, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, well, and so red, you know, red flags aside. Okay, so we've ruled out, you know, cancer or fracture, osteoporotic fracture, or you know, systemic inflammation, whatever, whatever yeah. it might be, and you know. I've had the pain for three months, six months, a year, whatever it might be. It's my sore shoulder, sore knee, sore hip. And yeah, so when might it not, in that context, when might it not be a good plan to poke into pain? So you can always, this is the point where we can always experiment. I think there's a subset of people we would, if we had to label them, <laughs> we'd call them like endurance copers. And uh, they they might not realize that actually you see, I think you more see it in yoga than you do in Pilates where people very uh, restricted in the right and the, that there's one right way to do a, a posture. So mm -hmm. someone might be an endurance coper and it always hurts and you can make just tiny little changes in how they move and it might feel better. So there's a subset of people where maybe it is worth changing, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I would go back to that. Like it's worth backing off if you haven't actually tried to back off or make certain modifications, you know, that right. you, you see it in runners, right? Like uh, I very rarely change gait. But sometimes, like, uh, it's worthwhile. Like the Neo way. Mm -hmm. And they're big heel strikers mm -hmm. with long strides. And it's just been hurting for, like, a year. That might be, and they're still running, maybe not as much as they want. Uh, that might be worth trying to change how they move and see if they can run with a little yeah. less pain. Yeah. Right. Because we know that shorter strides put less, you know, pressure on up through the leg. Right? Yeah. Less, less ground reaction force. Yeah. So... All right, so let, let's un. I, I I just I think we're almost done with this, but I just want to unpack uh, just for a moment, or maybe not for a moment, what you said about changing movement, because you know when I hear you say that, okay, so I think like, all right, so I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm I'm bench pressing and it hurts my shoulder, and so you change the way I bench press and it doesn't hurt anymore, or maybe I'm squatting and it hurts my hip, so you change the way I'm squatting, it doesn't hurt anymore. Um, what I understand you to mean, you know, because I know your context is that I think you're just thinking like, okay, well, your, your systems become sensitized to this particular condition, this particular pattern, this particular you know, position. Um, so there's, it's kind of like conditioned almost. Um, and if you just change the position, it's like it changes the context sometimes just enough that your central nervous system perceives it as a different context and it doesn't trigger that sort of alarm response. Um, yeah. Uh, but I'm, I imagine that a lot of people listening to this um, are thinking that you're, you're thinking about some kind of, you know, arcane physiotherapist knowledge of biomechanics that you're, you know, you're watching me bench press and go, oh no, you're using your, you know, pronated teres, you know, too much in that movement. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to get your fingers more spaced apart to uh, you know, deactivate that a bit or whatever. So yeah, can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, so it's really hard. It, it it could be the way you said it. I actually went to Switzerland and I gave a, it was at a running conference and I gave a, a case for changing running that had nothing to do with nociception or like 
you know, and I talked about, you were talking about associative learning and all of that stuff. Um, but you know, it could be like, it, like, so again, I'll, let me talk about myself. <laughs> so with my shoulder, the frozen shoulder, I was trying to do lots of squatting the last year. I want to build up my squat. And after a while it was just killing a regular back squat, holding onto the bar. So my genius training, I bought a safety squat bar where you hold the bar yeah. in front of you. Like simple things like that. That's, I don't know if that's associative learning. There's certainly a change in the stress on the shoulder, right? It could have been as simple as nociception. So sometimes it is like you're just changing the stress on the tissue and that, and that feels, feels better, but I never pretend to know exactly what it is. It doesn't matter. We'll just, just, just go around and change stuff. Or, you know, sometimes people feel better when they squat and they push their knees out. Like I'm not worried about knee valgus. But if it feels better, then go for it. Or if you have a pinching in the front of your hip, why not turn your you know foot out when you're golfing? Mm. You know, like that's on the, the follow through of the golf swing. You know, so yeah, I don't know the mechanism. I would just say have people play around. There's and that and then that's what I mean by movement optimism. If you play around, you think all of these are acceptable ways to move. It opens up all these options. So the one that feels isn't better that for interesting. you, go for it. Um, isn't that interesting? Uh, one, I did some reading uh, last year on on the factors that predict academic success, and I was looked at a few systematic reviews on adult uh, online tertiary learning because uh, we were pivoting to on adult online tertiary learning. So I wanted to understand, you know, how to help people most effectively. Um, and uh, there was one one thing that just uh, you know came to mind as you were saying that is about computer use, and it's because online learning, obviously, being Un, being unable to use computers at a high level, you know, people like can't even upload a document or, you know, open their e-learning platform or whatever is a, is an impediment to success in online education. Um, but actually what this one systematic review teased out was it actually wasn't the level of computer knowledge that was important. It was what they termed computer playfulness. Mm. So basically what that is, is that if you don't know what the hell you're doing, right, but you just start clicking on shit until something does what you want it to, then you're going to be fine. But if you sit there paralyzed, worried that if you click on the wrong thing, you're going to crash the system or, you know, delete all your files off your computer by accident, then you're paralyzed and you end up not being able to proceed and, and achieve what you want. And that struck me as very similar to what you just described in terms of movement optimism. Just try some different shit, you know, experiment, explore around, see, see if you find something that works. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's why even those who have a very kinesiopathological model of, of pain, uh, there's still value in talking to them to see what tools they have to teach people to move differently. You just don't have to ascribe to their philosophy. So I don't know if you guys know Shirley Sarman, very famous physio yeah. in North America. I've taken her Diagnosis courses. and treatment of movement impairment syndromes. Yeah. I don't believe in her philosophy, but I know I could learn a ton from her. You know, or like Mulligan or someone like that, just the way they coax people to move differently. They just have their hands on them there and that'll work for me too. Try that as well. Huh. What's your, what's your current position on Mulligan, not Mulligan per se, but on mobilizations with movement? Because I know that at one stage a few years ago, you were, you know, a sort of moderate advocate. Yeah. yeah. I, you know what? Techniques. So people tell, tell me there's still like. I mean, the patients I'm seeing don't really demand a certain type of therapy, but I think if I was in more, if I was back in private practice six days a week at like a more traditional place, I'm sure I'd have people really demanding and, and, and wanting manual therapy. And that's probably the style that I would give something like that. 
because it's very open to like experimentation and your own style. You know, you can Mulligan is exactly what you said about people playing with their computer without worrying about crashing Facebook for six hours, right? Like you just <laughs> do. Did this is gonna, this to be dated six? What? Uh, <laughs> we we slept. The funny thing was we slept through that. I think Australia was pretty much asleep through oh. all that drama. And I woke up in the morning and I'm like. Oh, why is my Instagram being annoying? It's like, uh, and I just thought it was my problem. And I thought my internet on my phone was down. I was like, oh, that's annoying. And then I just saw that the whole world had basically shut down because <laughs> Facebook, Instagram and whatever else they control. Yeah. Um, I wonder what the died. stats were on mental health for that day. You know? <laughs> probably a mixed bag. Some people were probably better. Some were worse. <laughs> but I heard Twitter was just alive with awesomeness and just totally taking the piss. So, because Twitter was... Twitter yeah. was king, was king for a day. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, so this is something that fascinates me about you, Greg, and I think something that a lot of um, a lot of people can learn from and I'm curious to understand more. So from my knowledge of you, um, you started off, your, your first training was, was a lot more biomechanic. It, it, it was a biomedical model. But no, I, I wasn't wedded to the biomedical. That was so neat about my training. I was really, it was first in McMaster, then Waterloo. I just tweeted today that it was a John Sarno thing, who's sort of the most popular, you know, biopsychosocialist. Uh, I read his book when I was like 19, when I right. did my undergrad in, you know, kinesiology in the 90s. And then even when I did my master's, I was writing about central sensitization and my our biomechanics, different professors were teaching us that if you just go into an industry and change their postures and how they lift, that'll help some people. But you have to look at the other variables, all the psychosocial factors. So we knew all this stuff in the 90s. Right. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh-huh. There we go. No, because I was pretty lucky. I got introduced to this stuff quite early. Yeah, that is super cool. Um, okay, well, that answers that for me. Because really your movement optimism, I'm not sure if you've seen, but pretty much you can go on to any of uh, a breathe education grad or students, you know, bio and find movement optimist in, in their bio. You've really, <laughs> so I, I'd say like maybe a lot of our listeners don't know. You, that you, really, it. you coined <laughs> it. I mean, we've got, we've got the, I, I call you the OG, the original gangster, you know, movement optimist. And um, yeah, it's been something that has really captured, really captured the, 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 you know, um, the motivation, the inspiration and, and kind of like what we want to do as, yeah. as, yeah, oh, as, which is so cool. So we thank you. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we're all probably, I mean, I loved hearing your interpretation of what you mean by movement optimism. And I think what we probably do is we all take on some sort of what movement optimism means to us. Um, and I guess for me, it, it's really has been around learning and, and inherently believing that that we are anti-fragile and adaptable and um yeah as opposed to th thinking of us as like machines that ultimately yeah. break down with wear and tear for me that's kind of been the biggest thing because I I was not a movement optimist optimist when I first studied to be a Pilates instructor um, I came from, you know, having the the bulge disc and, and all of that and was told not to flex and truly believed that and it kind of stopped me pretty much moving with any sort of freedom for a year. It stopped me from running. It stopped me from basically doing all the things I loved and it stopped me from feeling 
empowered in my body basically. Um, so for me it's been quite the journey to get to a place where, um, yeah, I am a, a huge believer in in adaptability and movement optimism and you've been a huge influence um, on me in that, Greg, so thank you. You're and I know, welcome. and you, yeah, like I really, really appreciate that. I, I only started it because I wanted to slouch because I was too lazy to sit up straight. <laughs> that was it. It was purely for myself. <laughs> I'm a, I'm like a proponent of slouching. And if I put on weight, slouch. I wanted to be able to run a marathon without someone <laughs> telling it. me um, I have to lose weight. I want to ask you, I want to <laughs> ask you on the back of Chloe's uh what Chloe, what you just said about um, people having movement optimists in their bio, which I've I've noticed as well. Uh, or the other sort of variation is fearless movement, um, um, which I think is awesome. And shout out to you if you've got that in your bio. Yeah, somewhere. hell yeah. <laughs> um, um, but I, I wanted to just kind of get your your perspective on the phenomena of phenomenon of basically, the, uh, you know, I guess it's with love. It's the kind of the reformed smoker, you know phenomenon of, you know, once you become, you know, quotes, woke to, to this, you know, biopsychosocial stuff and you realize, oh, the disc bulge isn't like the sole and only cause of your back pain and you can bend and be safe. And, you know, all of a sudden you have this, you know, many of us, I think all of us just about have this sort of almost compulsive need to just like, you know, tell everyone <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, and educate everyone. So we want to educate, how, but how can I educate my clients? How can I let my clients walk out? Yeah, you know, still we know that, that was me, Raph. We know that was me when um, I first learned it. <laughs> this isn't veiled at you, Claire. This is, this is, I see this everywhere, right? So so I, I see people, you know, like I, I was having some interesting discussions with actually Daniel Arbilla on Instagram last week and we were talking about, um, you know, well, you know, if if a client came in and, and said, you know, they wanted VMO activation exercises for their knee pain. And we know that VMO activation is no better than just general quadriceps strengthening uh, for patellofemoral pain. You know, would you would you give that, you know, given that they expected it to help more than any other thing and they, you know, you know, so would there be a problem with giving that? And me, I don't have a problem with, if the, you know, if you came in to me and had a strongly held belief that VMO activation or some or rot specific rotator cuff targeting or some other thing was going to, help your pain, even though I know that, yeah, we could just do, we could exercise the other arm. Glute, and help just glute much, activation, you know. Raph. Glute, glute activation. activation, whatever it is, right? Um, and, you know, like, so I would ask, I would, you know, I would ask like, okay, so why do you think that? And, you know, so I'd unpack that a little bit and see if, if you were just like, didn't really know, but you read it on Google one time and it's not a strongly held belief, then we'd just talk, move on. But if you were like, no, no, this is really impacting my life. You know, I'm totally focused on it. I can't let go of it. It's, you know, it's really important to me. You know, I would go, okay, great. Well, let's look at your VMO. Or let's look at your, whatever it is, muscle, you know, your glute activation, whatever. And I would be quite happy to do some kind of bogus VMO activation by tapping your VMO and going, oh, your patella is tracking a bit better now that you're doing, you know, I would be happy, happy to send you on your way with a pat on the butt going, yeah, Greg, you did a great job of activating your VMO. I think your knee's going to be a lot better, you know. Uh, but Daniel was, you know, not really – he was a little bit uncomfortable with, with the notion of sending you away with a narrative that then you go away and tell your friends and I they totally say, oh, agree oh, with Raph, Daniel. Raph helped you with your knee pain, you know, and you're like, yeah, you should go and see him. He's the VMO guy. You know, my VMO wasn't working. He really fixed it for me. You should get your VMO fixed as well. And so, you know, promoting this narrative. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, where do you sit or what advice do you have to, 
you know, to people on this, you know, how much is it our role to educate either our clients or our other practitioners, right? Um, and how much is it just our role to help people feel better and get back to doing the things they love? Yeah, both. <laughs> of course I'd say that. <laughs> uh, so I think you got to make that call. Do you think this belief is getting in the way of their recovery? And because sometimes you can have a negative belief and it, it could be really entrenched, but it doesn't need to be addressed to help that person. And uh, so I don't always uh, address negative things, especially I think that they're not really going to be harmful for them. So with the VMO idea, I'd probably fall somewhere in between the two of you where um, I'd be like, oh, that can easily be addressed. Um, you know, and then I'd, I'd, ex I'd explain the multidimensional nature of pain. I'd say there's probably some other things we should work on as well. You know, we could we could do the the some VMO work with this. Well, it's called a squat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, plus we could work on the, these other things. So that that I would kind of view that more of like patient preference because that's another way to choose an exercise. Mm. What are you interested in doing? What what exercises do you like to do? That, I'd fall under there. I wouldn't. I, but it would. I would be slightly not talking too much about the VMO, and I'd rather. I'd acknowledge it, but maybe focus on something else that it helps explain mm -hmm. their pain. I don't know if I'd initially come out and disabuse them of the idea. It, as they start getting better, then I start, might start introducing <laughs> the idea, not to worry too much about the VMO. Mm. I love that, Greg. I'm so on board with that. Raf, I think we see that a lot with, and you, Raf, you and I, you, I mean, I mean, I hear you having that convo with Daniel, but come on, you and I have had many a debate about oh, yeah. this exact thing on elephants yeah. and you know, my stance yeah. and my stance would sit, sit with, with Daniel. Um, and yeah. also what, what Greg's just said, I love that. I think we see this a lot with, um, it's the classic, the, the client that comes to the Pilates class because they're sure they've got a weak core and that is the cause of their persisting low back pain, right? That, that is such a common narrative, either that or their butt muscles have gone to sleep. So I think, Raf, if I, if I loop back to what you're saying, potentially when I first learned about multifactorial nature of pain, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm thinking, okay, this person's got persisting pain, yada, yada, I think I might've been a little bit more, mm, let me educate you why that's not a thing. Whereas now the way I work with my clients is very much what Greg just said there, where absolutely I can give them some exercises that, you know, where they, you know, feel like they, I can fire out, you're in a Pilates class. I can certainly work your core. <laughs> I can certainly work your, your butt or, you know, I can, I can tap into all of those things, but then also work them towards a more empowered, you know, uh, self-efficacy and, and belief back in, you know, the ability of their own body. So, um, that, that's kind of where I would go with it. Hey, Greg, have the, have the butt muscles of the world gone to sleep? Seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that this blog keeps coming up and you know what, every now and then, um, I really, I have these, I have these feelings, Raph, I get excited that potentially the industry has changed. And when I say the industry, Greg, I'm particularly here talking about the Pilates industry. And I think, you know, because we're in a little bit of a bubble in the sense that we have all these uh, amazing breathe education grads out there that, you know, have movement optimism in their bio and fully believe in adaptability of the body and et cetera, et cetera. Think, and, I, and, just, and just Pilates elephants listeners who are Pilates education ab Absolutely. Yeah. And Pilates elephants listeners, et cetera. Um, shout out to our listeners. But what I'm saying is every now and then I, I get a little bit like, 
oh yeah, it's all changed. Woo, we don't need to elevate the health industry anymore. It's there, we've made it. And then in that same week, I see so much fuckery. It's like, you know, these, you know, the big crosses and the big ticks about how if you're doing a fucking ab curl, you sure as hell better not be flexing your spine what you know and and just all this dead set by the way we swear on this and we haven't sworn much this episode so I thought I may as well get them all in in one one go but I saw you know I had a week the other week where it was just like bullshit after bullshit after bullshit from big accounts too like and it's it's annoying it's always the account that's got the hundred plus followers etc you know where they're really getting some traction on this stuff and it just perpetuates this bs it's like so, you know, I, I, I guess we've got to keep, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on it? How do we, we, we asked Adam the same thing when we had, um, Adam Meekins on recently, NAF Physio podcast, your, uh, your podcast pal there. Yeah. And we asked him the same sort of question, you know, what, what can we do? What do you think we can do to keep elevating, to keep, you know, calling out the, well, do we call out the bullshit? What do we do? What What are your thoughts on it, Greg? I'd love to hear yeah, your opinion. It, it's incredibly tough. I think some of it, like, again, you got to make the call how egregious it is. You know, because this, this is the irony. Sometimes like a, a negative assumption about the body, oh, the glutes, you know, become inhibited with pain or this is, some, or even without pain, it's just because you're sitting. Uh, that, I think that's wrong. There's not a lot of research. For that I don't know I know how it became so entrenched so I think it's worth you know challenging that idea but then the irony of that is it ends up leading to like good healthy activities like strength train and you know squat and be active that's the the worst part of it so the people that perpetuate these ideas they still do some good uh, out there you, you, you know what I mean? Like because they've got people moving. They've got people inspired yeah. to exercise. Right. Yeah. 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 That, that That's the issue. That's where I have. And so it's like, you know, how much do we want to quibble? You know, at what, what point and are, are they really hurt, hurting, hurting people? Right. That's what I'm not. Do you know what I mean? It, a worse, the mm. worst messaging is like, oh, you have hip osteoarthritis, you have to stop running and squatting and doing Pilates. Right. Yeah. But like, oh, if you strength train, you got to make sure you, you know, warm up your glutes. Well, I mean, it's not true, but whatever, <laughs> you know, it's gotcha. tough. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm liking looking at that. And to be honest, I haven't really looked at it through that lens before so um you're helping me chill a little greg which is nice <laughs> i feel like a little like maybe i'll have less instagram rage now that's nice like that's thank you <laughs> so all right i'm just this is just kind of a, a moderately selfish question greg what do you do you know because you're you're a what do they call it a public figure these days you know when you're on your instagram profile you, you your occupation is listed as public figure oh, is it i think that I don't know. I'm no. not, I don't know what yours is, but I think I think that you kind of are. You're in the public domain a lot I these days. So. You've got a podcast. You've got a YouTube channel. You're pretty big on social media. I see on Twitter. You know, um, so and and you're, you know, you take some relatively controversial stances on things. Um, I, uh, they're just the right stances. I don't know. That's true. That's true. So, <laughs> you do like to so, blow Twitter up. <laughs> I've so seen that what's happen. your, you know, what's 
what's your approach when someone just say you, you you create you make a post or a Twitter thing or you know you tweet whatever, and then someone disagrees in the comments yeah. and it's a very you know it maybe maybe it's a respectful disagreement but you look at it and you go oh it's so wrong and I'd have to explain the first five oh, ways of okay. critical thinking and you know <laughs> yeah so the, those ones are tough that's actually I don't do much of that I and mean, when they're so wrong and it's there's yeah that's hard but if someone disagrees and they present a counter argument. Then I always want to, okay, tell me more. Why do you think that? What leads to this thinking? You know, what's the evidence for this? And then, and then I like to have discussions about evidence and why we know what we know. As long as people go into it, like that's called a, that's a dialectic where you ha you're not having a debate to prove someone wrong. Mm -hmm. Although it's probably always in the back of your mind. It's more <laughs> just for you to find, get a little closer to the truth. So that, that's kind of the, the, the discussions or debates that I'm into now. You know, and, I, and I'll, I even, and this is what sometimes I'll go out of my way to like, here's what I don't know. And I wish this, and I hope that people will reciprocate. They never do. Often they just double down and tell me, I don't know anything. <laughs> like, wow. I'm trying to give you a bone here, but like, you know, like I want, so that's how I, that's how I try to engage in public debates is that type of openness, looking for common ground. But then at some point you know, thinking, I, I know, like, I want to prove to them, I know what you're saying. Like, it's not that I don't understand your point. Yeah. Often I held it before. Like, I know it really well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is why I think it's wrong. And this is why, where it, it, it can change. And then that, that's how I try to engage in public with discussions, like, trying not to score points. I love that. I think that's really helpful. I think a lot of our listeners will find that really helpful as well. So, how, how, oh, sorry. Oh, you no, go, no, Claire. you go, you go. Well, I was just going to totally change the subject. So, <laughs> well, so was okay. I because I was I wanted to talk about Neo A. So, do you? Yeah, well, let's talk about Neo A then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Greg, I know um, back when I did your course, Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science, and by the way, if you are a listener and you haven't done Greg's course yet, highly recommend you do it. It's freaking awesome. And, Greg, you can do well, it on, online now. You can do it online now, right? Yeah. Which is, I mean, I think that's one of the coolest things that's happened from these last, you know, this last 18 plus months is that all these, um, you know, opportunities now are to study with some of the the most awesome people out there in the industry. You can you can do it online now regardless yeah, of where I've you are. I've heard in person. The online is the information dump. Like right. there's more material in the online than in the in-person. But what's right. nice about the in-person is we have discussions and debates and challenges. That's why yeah. when you do the online, you get to use it as a credit to the in-person. That was that's so sort of the idea. With your online, is it live? Are you or no. is it recorded? It's pre-recorded. It's like right. how do you get all this information out there? So the ideas, ideas, and then case studies, and then research. Yeah, because you can't do that in person. It's too boring. It's too much. It's just a wall of of info. So so we get more of your more of your jokes, etc. In person. We get to experience more so. of more of more of your personality, which is which is awesome. Um, but w back when I did your course, right. so that must have been a good couple of years ago. Now you had just started talking about you were creating your um, amazing resource Neo A. Uh, yeah, optimism. OA Optimism. OA Optimism. Yeah, I always um, forget the name too. 
OA optimism. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that because I've actually, I found that resource to be really helpful and I have sent that on to quite a few clients actually. Um, so yeah, what was your, cause I mean, you've just put that out as a free resource, haven't you? Yeah, it's just free. It's just a series of like three to seven minute videos, uh, explaining osteoarthritis and what you can do to help yourself. That's it. Trying to like, there's some debunking cause that's where there's so many, there's a lot of poor messaging in that area. So there's a, some debunk videos. There's like, what's pain? Why does it hurt? And then what can you do? And then sort of a simple exercise library. Cause it's another area where, again, we overcomplicate exercises, which mm. really bothers me. Like exercise should just be for everyone to do. Like, you know, I hate the videos where people like make fun of people in the gym and all that stupid stuff. Like just just get moving sometimes and that OA is absolutely that that get get moving is fantastic yeah I I don't like those videos either actually I get really yeah I'm like why are we poking fun at someone who's having a go at moving I mean who is moving you know (laughs) we should be encouraging them but yeah and and I started too because there's the glad program which I quite like as well but I think it overcomplicates things it makes too difficult makes exercise more special than it is makes people who give out the exercise have to have special training. And in some countries you even have to be physios. And I'm like, no, you don't have to be a physio to prescribe exercise for so many different conditions. So the fewer like gates or like fences, whatever, what's that called? Gatekeeping. <laughs> We're like obstacles in, in the way, yeah. the better. That was the idea. Why particularly um, NEOA? Oh, because it's, it's so common. Right. Right. Okay. Knee and hip away. We just have knee and hip. There's more evidence that exercise helps with knee away. Hip away is less researched. Right. Yeah. OA, of course, is osteoarthritis. Yeah. Thank you. So, can you give us the 60 second uh, master's degree in uh, exercise for knee osteoarthritis? Yeah. It's the same as low back pain. (laughs) It's, It's like, do something for your knee. Do something for your hip, do something for your foot, um, get more active in general, walking, hiking, swimming, it doesn't matter. Uh, look at all of the areas in your, your life where you can be healthier, you know, your coping skills, your social life, you're allowed to poke into pain if it hurts, you know, sleep better, you know, manage your stress, understand pain better. It's the same as everything, right? All of these things can help with NeoA. Uh, don't expect to be pain-free. That's not fair, but don't, ex- don't assume that you have to stop your life because you have knee away and don't assume that it's progressive. It's not it, it, you can, most people stay at sort of the same level for years or they get better, right? It's, you're not doomed once you have that diagnosis. So that's the, but obviously I can't run or do deep squats. Well, you can't cause you suck. Uh, that has nothing to do with your neo way. <laughs> but I couldn't play the violin before. Could you run that, before? <laughs> <laughs> and no, you can't play the violin after this rehab program. Uh, I think. So yeah, that's what's so great is you can run. It's the, it's the whole thing, like this concept of wear and tear where like physical loading is dramatically driving this, like changes in tissue isn't well supported. And that's neo way is perfect for that. Same with the spine, like. Load is a force for good. You just got to find the right balance between load and recovery. But that's the same with everything. The NEOA doesn't change that at all. I would love to just talk, uh, you've kind of sparked my interest here. I'd love to just talk a 
a little bit about some of the lines of evidence for OA not being a, quote, wear and tear condition? Because I think that is like most people listening to this is probably that's their kind of what they were taught when they were a kid is that osteoarthritis is caused by quote wear and tear, like running wears down your knees, et cetera. Yeah. And so that's why we like to, you know, we often advertise exercises like, oh, this is low impact or no impact. Oh, it's good for your joints. Yeah. So that, yeah. It's, it's the, it's the irony. It's just that we don't, the, like, I think if you're loading yourself at an extreme high level, like either occupation or sport, and just not recovering and maybe causing actual damage because the loads are like just so ridiculously high, then, then yeah, load might be a little bit related to osteoarthritis. And, and that's sort of like the ultra marathoner, you know, obsessive triathlete. Level. Yeah. There's probably some training issues going on there or you injure yourself when like you tear your ACL when you, as a 17 year old girl, she's more predisposed or, you know, it's just probably more bad training. I would say, you know, just not smart training, but the average person who's just physically active in the workplace or just running three to five days a week and strength training and lifting heavy, heavy loads. Uh, it's just not there. The research isn't there that more stress on the joint leads to, you know, more degeneration. And my favorite study is one where they were telling people you had to lose weight. This is a Messier and a Henrik's Henriksen study. They're like, oh, you have to lose weight. You have to get less load on your knee for you to for you to recover. And people did lose weight, which is hard to do. But then what they realized was when these people were walking, they were putting more stress on their knee. <laughs> it's ironic. So they, they lost weight, but they had more knee load. And they're like, oh no, what have we done? The law of un wow. unintended consequences here. So there's more more load on the knee. <laughs> Um, and they thought, oh, we better follow these people. So they followed them for 18 months with the more knee load. And there wasn't, they weren't any worse off. There was not more degenerative changes over time. So even like the idea of being overweight, being a cause for knee OA, it's, pro it, it's associated with pain and disability, but it, it's probably not the load or the physical stress on the knee. Right. More of these metabolic well, Because people issues. who are overweight also have more, say, arthritis in their fingers, exactly. for example. Um, and then there's also, there are also just um, uh, studies that find that, you know, most of the, now, you know, I'm probably going to get this back to front, but uh, most of, most OA is in the medial compartment, whereas, yeah. you know, people in valgus, the loads more on the lateral compartment, one way or the other anyway, like the, basically they find that where the OA is radiographically, like on an MRI or whatever, doesn't correlate with actually the positions of maximum pressure within the knee joint. Uh, that one's a bit mixed. If you look at the work of Sharma, you know, her, her stuff. So people who are, are have varus. So if you go into varus, like, like you're riding a horse, like knock knees, that'll compress the medial compartment. And so it slightly increases your risk of incidence. So like the first time away of like by like 10 to 15%, but still tiny. And then it's associated with progression, but valgus, it's not related. So more, so valgus, when your knee goes in, there'd be more lateral. It, that doesn't seem, maybe it's a bit associated with progression, but not incidence. It's not that big of a deal. And then the coolest part, and I, well, you know, this is when you try to change varus, like the knock knee, people get better, but you don't change var the, what's called the varus whip or, or a, the technical term is like the knee adduction moment. So that's, I used to try to really read that. 
I won't advise it to you. It's a mess. And you're like, and, and remember it's posture. It's not like how you move. It's probably a, post, a postural change that you can't do anything about. It's just the shape of the bones. So I just, mm. I just stopped reading it. <laughs> it's such a mess. <laughs> so I didn't mean to disagree with you, but it's, it's, it's messy and it's worth not thinking about. Uh-huh. Um, oh, there's also, um, that's interesting to me what you say about the, the obesity or losing weight. Cause that's, that was a standard advice that I was taught in my degree is, you know, 10% weight reduction equals you know X number of points of VAS pain reduction, um, you know, for people with osteoarthritis. Um, and, but I was always taught that that was a cyst, that was more an inflammatory biomarker thing rather than a, cause if you look at, you know, it's like people who are, you know, have a high BMI, but they're muscular. So like athletes and stuff, mm. well, they don't, you know, necessarily have the same you know, OA yeah. pain or whatever as people who are obese with the same BMI. Um, and also, I mean, there's, there's, again, I, I can't remember the name of the study, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's like an a inverse U shaped relationship, like you said, with um, sort of cartilage thickness, where basically uh, you know, people who are doing extreme amounts of activity have, you know, less knee health or more OA and people who are completely sedentary have more OA and people who are moderately active seem to have less. Uh, I seem to remember that, or maybe that was disc health. I can't remember. I think I know your paper you're talking about, and I think they started with that conclusion. I'll send it to you. Uh, I actually went through that and I found a mistake in one of their graphs and I started tweeting about it. I didn't understand. I'm like, this is completely wrong. And it turns out they had the wrong graph when they, when they put it in. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, I think they just started with that idea because when you looked at it, it, it didn't really support Like the people who were, it was step one, right? Taking lots of steps. Was it high steps and high BMI? No, that wasn't it. Oh, okay. Well, that's, there's a paper that tries to say that. And the, and I was like, why are you telling people the more steps they take, the more likely they are, are to have OA? Because all, all it said, it, what they're, because if you're telling people you want them to lose weight and then you say, but don't take a lot of steps, <laughs> you're fucking that's people. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you really looked at that, the risk was just high BMI. It wasn't high steps or high load. That, that yeah. was it. Right. And, and, and so what I would like to see a study is people do the actions to try to lose weight, but they don't lose weight, but they just try to be healthier. I would guess that they would have less pain as well. So we see that that's why exercise is so great. You don't have to lose weight and you can be doing quite mm -hmm. well. Like losing weight is just one option, but for so many people, you will doom them. They will just think, well, what's the point? I can't lose weight. I've been trying to lose weight for 30 years. Yeah. I get worried of some of that, the, the advice out there. That's like the commonly accepted advice from the OA like groups, you know, like the governing bodies or whatever, national bodies and that stuff. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just uh, trying to look through my endnote library here. And I found, I mean, I found three actually big recent systematic reviews in the last two years um, that have looked at uh, running and knee yeah. cartilage, but they've all looked at the short term. Yeah. And it's association stuff. And yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some association studies where you know uh, super elite athletes have more OA. Yeah. Um, but good news is these three systematic reviews also found that basically uh, running uh, has no. Basically, when you run, uh, you hydrate your cartilage, you squish the nutrients through the hyaline cartilage inside the joint, which is a good thing. 
Um, and uh, you also compress the cartilage. So your cartilage is, is a bit squeezed immediately after you run, but it returned, it basically plumps back up again within 24 yeah. hours. It's JF stuff. Mm. JF Escoulier, was that one of the authors there? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We're good buddies. I could tell. <laughs> so, Chloe, is there anything else you wanted to? I'm just looking at my little. I had a little. Greg? Had a little list of things I wanted to. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I don't. I don't feel like we can have a discussion with Greg without talking about trampolining and skateboarding. So for me, <laughs> I just, as I said, Greg, you, you know, you've really, you've helped. Um, You've helped shape a lot of my my um, critical thinking and uh, thoughts around around movement in the world, which is, you know, if you, <laughs> it's quite profound. So thank you. Um, but it, I I just love the fact that as an as an adult, you you've taken up these two things. You know, you took up the trampolining and the the somersaulting, etc. And then more recently skateboarding and you've actually for those that don't know Greg's like built his own skateboard ramps basically in his backyard and (laughs) like what tell can you you know what what led you to want to do those what and oh I was just bored I was just bored with running just I used to run a lot I just didn't feel fit so I got back into gymnastics and then uh, like with my kids I was going to their tumbling classes they were like eight and six and I was the 43 or whatever. It was a bit weird at cheerleading. And then, uh, then I, that wasn't enough. So I started training on my own and going to adult gymnastics. And then because my shoulder last year, I couldn't put my arm over my head. I, uh, I started skateboarding and all that <sighs> stuff just to, you know, just to try some, and then it's so, and I didn't mean to, but I guess skateboarding is incredibly popular now with old people. It's like, this, it? I'm wearing a later skaters t-shirt. For all these uh, old people that picked it up, it's so funny. <laughs> oh my God, this is amazing. So I just got bored with running. That was it. Okay, that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Hopefully, it didn't. <laughs> I uh, the last time I went skateboarding was when I jumped on my brother's skateboard and I very quickly fell off and landed really hard on my coccyx bone. And I'm not gonna lie, it kind of kind of gave me a little bit of a oh. Oh, oh yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah, but you a, just a lot it. of Canadians I know seem to be, you know, maybe I'm. It's just a limited sample of people I know, but most of the Canadians that I can bring to mind that I know seem to be very outdoorsy. So, like, you know, you guys seem to love, you know, hiking and trail running and rock climbing and swimming and. I live in Toronto. Biking. So, you, if you live in BC or Alberta, Toronto is not so good for that. Right. So not me. But uh, I don't know. You just told me, you told us you're going rock climbing. Oh, that's and, inside. You know, it's, so it's actually plastic climbing. <laughs> <laughs> what it is. We're, we're imagining you scaling the, I don't know, what's what's the big mountain range you've got there in Canada? <laughs> I'm oh, yeah. Well, there's Squamish. Rockies. That's where people, that's where the elite rock climbers are, but I wouldn't go there. Yeah. No, no, I'm just okay. going bouldering tonight. Bouldering. I love it. Mm. Yeah, that was my. That was the only other. I was just curious about what what led Greg to, yeah, gymnastics and skateboarding. Yeah, that's it. Well, Greg, if you you know if you could um, if you could put something on a billboard for our listeners, what would you what would you put to finish off? <laughs> uh, I would tell them to vote for another prime minister. <laughs> 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 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I thank know. you. I don't know what I think about your politics. I didn't no. even say that. That was a no. That was that was a spot on, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I might have got that from you. <laughs> you might have. Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't know. It'd be something like cheesy, like keep it up. Uh, honestly, that that sort of is the my mantra. Like I don't know why people. I was making fun of myself when I said I was doing tumbling with my girls at gymnastics because I'd see all the other parents just sitting there. And I just, and they think I'm the loser. I'm like, you're the loser. So that was, that's what's on the billboard. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm like, it's so lame. You're the you loser. turn like 40, you just have yeah. to sit and watch your kids do stuff. I was like, screw yeah. this. I'm going to ruin this for my children, <laughs> but I'm going to stay fit. I love it. So you kind of inspired, you've, you've totally inspired me to take up something that maybe I'd kind of put in the past. I, I'm wear thinking past. I might get. I might well, go back. I mean, <laughs> lessons chess. Well, Bintu does gymnastics once we get out of lockdown on a Thursday or a Tuesday or something. Can't remember which day anymore because it's been so long. But you can come along and join in if you want, Chloe. <laughs> will you join in, Raph? If you do, I will. <laughs> okay. It sounds like we're going to do gymnastics. We I love it. We embarrass the living shit out of my we, poor daughter. We will embarrass She's the 14. hell out of her. Mortify. Um, well, thank you, Greg. Perfect timing. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.